Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning and welcome to Money Talk for Tuesday the 20th of June. This is Peter Lewis and I want to thank you once again for making Money Talk one of the top 10 most listened to financial podcasts on Apple Podcasts in Hong Kong. You'll also find us on Google Podcasts and on Spotify. On Facebook, the show is Peter Lewis Money Talk and on Twitter at Money Talk R3. You can also contact me through my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, and that's where you'll find my daily newsletter, which has a lot more business and financial news and information from around Asia. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has met President Xi Jinping as he wraps up a two-day visit to Beijing. President Xi said the two nations' ability to cooperate will impact the future of humanity. He said he hoped the countries could enjoy a peaceful coexistence, but the U.S. must refrain from damaging China's legitimate interests. Mr. Blinken said he and President Xi had a robust conversation about global affairs, and he has been seeking to disabuse China of the notion that the U.S. is seeking to economically contain them. He also reiterated that the U.S. doesn't support Taiwan's independence, stating it doesn't wish to change the status quo, but he warned against China's provocative actions in the Taiwan Strait. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has welcomed a large Chinese delegation to Berlin, the first face-to-face meeting between the countries since 2018. It's also the first overseas visit by new Chinese Premier Li Chang. During Premier Li's six-day trip to Europe, he'll also travel to France and attend the summit for a new global financing pact on Thursday and Friday. The priority for this week's talks will be to put Germany-China relations back on the right track after all the talk of de-risking and the Ukraine war. Later today, the People's Bank of China is widely expected to cut the loan prime rate, which has remained unchanged for 10 straight months. The one-year LPR, which is the rate used for corporate and household loans, is currently at 3.65%, while the five-year rate, a reference for mortgages, is at 4.3%. And a new programme allowing Hong Kong and international investors to trade equities in Chinese yuan as well as the local currency commenced on the Hong Kong stock markets Monday. The Hong Kong dollar renminbi dual counter model gives traders the option to buy and sell some of the city's biggest listed stocks, including Tencent, Alibaba and China Mobile, using the yuan. There are 24 companies on the list with a combined market value equivalent to 1.9 trillion US dollars. That's around 35% of the city's total market capitalization. Some 163 million yuan, that's almost 23 million US dollars worth of shares changed hands yesterday, representing 0.6% of the turnover on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. And the three most actively traded yuan-denominated stocks were China Mobile, Tencent and Ping An Insurance. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, David Roche, who is president and global strategist at Independent Strategy, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. US markets were closed yesterday for the Juneteenth public holiday. Asian equities were mainly lower on Monday. Japan's Nikkei 225 has posted weekly gains for the last 10 weeks, but it slipped 1% yesterday. Berkshire Hathaway revealed on Monday 
that its wholly owned subsidiary, National Indemnity Company, has increased its stake in five Japanese trading firms to more than 8.5% on average. The five Sogo Shosho, as they are known, are Itoku, Marubini, Mitsubishi, Mitsui and Sumitomo. Berkshire Hathaway said it intends to hold its Japanese investments for the long term, with CEO Warren Buffett pledging the company will only purchase up to 9.9% of any of the five firms. And the Berkshire Holdings in the five Japanese general trading companies are now its largest in any stock outside of the US. Hong Kong, mainland China and Taiwan markets are closed Thursday and China and Taiwan additionally on Friday for the Dragon Boat Festival. Yesterday, Hong Kong stocks retreated from a six-week high on disappointment that the State Council failed to unveil an economic stimulus plan on Friday as hoped. The Hang Seng Index ended the day 127 points or 0.6% lower at 19,913. The Tech Index tumbled 1.3% and on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index dropped half a percent to 3,256. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our guests on this Tuesday morning. We have our regular Tuesday commentator, Stuart Allcroft, an Asian fund management industry consultant. Morning, Stuart. Good morning, Peter. And also joining us, David Roche, who is president and global strategist at Independent Strategy. Morning to you, David. Hello, everybody. And over in the US, we have our economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. Happy Juneteenth, Barry. (laughs) Thank you very much. June 19th. You're right. Good morning. Good morning to you too. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken has met President Xi Jinping as he wraps up a two-day visit to Beijing. The 35-minute meeting took place in the landmark building of the Great Hall of the People on the edge of Tiananmen Square in Beijing. And Mr Blinken is the first US Secretary of State to visit China since 2018. And analysts considered a meeting with the Chinese president crucial to the success of his visit. President Xi said the two nations' ability to cooperate will impact the future of humanity, and he said he hoped the countries could enjoy a peaceful coexistence, but the US must refrain from damaging China's legitimate interests. Mr Blinken said President Joe Biden had asked him to travel to China because he believes the United States and China have an obligation to manage our relationship. Mr Blinken said he and President Xi had a robust conversation about global affairs, including Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine. And the US Secretary of State said he had been seeking to disabuse China of the notion that the US is seeking to economically contain them. So, Barry, from a a US uh, perspective, how significant is this meeting? Well, I think very much so. I suppose the big question mark here was whether... Mr. Blinken would meet President Xi. Well, he did for 35 minutes. I noticed that some critics say, well, if you allow for translations, that was probably the shortest meeting that President Xi has had with a visiting American in a very long time. Official visit from an American. But I think the the statement from both sides that they want to manage the relationship is exceedingly positive. We've been through a very bad patch in U.S.-China relations. This seems to be a reset of of sorts. I don't think anyone has high expectations, but I think it's significant. Stuart, what are your your thoughts? I agree entirely. Um, I I don't think the time of the meeting, 35 minutes, is particularly relevant. After all, um, Lincoln had had, what, five and a half hours or more of 
visits with um, others at the same time. Wang Yi, um, the top diplomat for, for China, was among other meetings he held that same day. So, um, of course, I think the meeting with President Xi was just an exchange of a few speeches and thank you very a photo call and thank you very much. But the reality is that he made that meeting. That was important. And secondly, it would appear from the way that Xi Jinping um, responded on it that he feels that he's got uh, something of a relationship growing with Joe Biden and that uh, their last meeting in, I think, Bali in November had yielded some quite positive responses. So I think there is um, the, the, the seeds, at least, for a much better um, relationship to be, be to, to start. Um, and Blinken, I think, should be praised for having done a very good job here. David, do you think, um, did you get the impression that President Xi was being quite conciliatory to, to the US in, in some of his words yesterday? I think he showed to his own people that he reached out to America. But I think the uh, it is about establishing communications if there is an emergency over the South China Sea, which are already being two, uh, so that things don't stumble into a military situation by accident. But I don't think it heralds an opening up. I think the key to the American doctrine is the new uh, Washington uh, doctrine, which basically says, you know, we're putting security first and foremost. We will cooperate with you if you play by the rules. And if there are global things that uh, it would be, make better sense that we handle together, like pandemics, etc. But the old kind of WTO-based, uh, come and sit in the table, help yourself, and we hope that you learn table manners as you go along. <laughs> that is not that is not part of it. Mm. So I, 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 I don't think it is a major breakthrough, personally. But Barry, do you think it's helped stabilise relations? President Biden said he wanted to put a floor under the relationship, didn't he, when, when they met in, in Bali. Do you think that at least it has done that now, and, and at least there are lines of communication open and maybe things can move forward from here? Yes, I do. I think that's very much the case. I think that, um, you know, the, the honest response of, of both sides is in its own way positive. I mean, here's Mr. Blinken saying we have profound differences. Well, he said that in Beijing. That's not bad. And uh, David is right. I mean, there hasn't been any breakthrough. Uh, there are so many unresolved issues, certainly on trade. The Chinese want the sanctions lifted. Uh, we'll see what happens with that. I, I suspect that the Americans are yielding on allowing your chief executive to come to the APEC meeting in Seattle. Uh, so, yeah, it, uh, it may, does it put a floor on relations? It is a start after a very bad patch. I think we could all debate whether the Americans and Europeans are trying to restrain China, certainly on high-tech issues. There's no doubt they are. But uh, is that going to poison future talks? Probably not. That's where I differ, because I actually think what happens really depends on what China does. And what the U.S. are signaling is that, you know, they they really have to accept that the status quo on Taiwan is going to stay where it is. And the Chinese are not going to do that. And therefore, I mean, what you're looking at is the containment of China through tech, through trade, 
and everything else to make sure that it is not able uh, to win any conflict with Taiwan. So I, I think the, the, whether this leads to anything or to nothing really depends on the Chinese changing course. And I see very little, very little hope of that. It's a different view. So what's the most that we can hope for here? Is is the most, because we're not going to go back to the, the, the good old days, are we? When uh, Particularly when China and the US first started talking, we're sort of in this new normal. Is the most we can hope for a way in which the US and China can sort of coexist peacefully? Because the differences between the two are pretty large, aren't they? I mean, some people would say uh, they're irreconcilable. Well, you would need to see a ratcheting down of... Uh military action in the South China Sea, put that on a more normal basis rather than 19 PLA aircraft and ships, you know, in uh, Taiwan's economic zone every day, you would need to see uh, normal behavior between uh, Chinese air, uh, fighter aircraft uh, flying near US ones, and you would need to see the same thing happening in the sea without um, Chinese frigates crossing the bows of American I think that that comes first and foremost. So Taiwan's the biggest down. issue between the two sides. Oh, is that the uh, number one? Undoubtedly, and it's what she said he's going to say, he's going to settle before he leaves office. And I think behind all of this, behind trade and everything else, is the containment of China because of the need to ensure that Taiwan's status cannot be changed. And we're a long way from that. Yeah, I, I agree in most part with what David is saying. I think that, yes, uh, Taiwan is a massive uh, 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 issue, uh, but it's a massive issue because of the potential of military conflict. It's not a trade issue. Um, and the uh, U.S. is also there to want to improve trade relations between China and the U.S. Um, and, and so I think, you know, don't, don't over-highlight Taiwan for the... Um, for the sake of the military side, that is really important. But the trade relationship and the just general relationship between the US and China are all part of the same discussion. And I think um, all are of equal importance in, in, in the way in which they're being debated here. I mean, I think that is true and very true. But the problem about trade is dual use trade in technology. I mean, we really aren't very hyped up about shoes. What we are hyped up about is, is uh, sub-5 nano chips. And uh, we want to make sure that China does not get these because they may go into a G5 phone, but then they may not. They may go into something far more lethal, like a missile. So wh when we talk trade, we have to realize that as long as the security situation is what it is, uh, trade in terms of... Uh, not allowing China access to that technology is going to continue. Now, that means the trade can't go back to what China wants it to go back to, which is to have access to that technology. So I think we can have a normalization which allows both sides to talk to each other, which de-escalates automatically. But I don't, I don't think that that signifies anything more than that. I'm, I'm very, uh, personally, I'm pessimistic. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm right. I could give you a long catalogue of things I've been wrong about in my life, but um, that's how I personally do things. David, can I uh, inquire? Do you think that the Americans, Japanese, and Europeans can really restrain Chinese ability to manufacture and use these high-technology products? Yes, uh, I think they can. 
and having looked at the um, where they're produced and by whom, uh, about 80% of what China needs um, in order to uh, achieve its stated military goals uh, are made outside China, principally in TSMC and in Taiwan, which is, you know, in a sense what the China crisis is all about if you're not a humanist. Uh, but yes, I think they can. Now, this is a little like saying, can you stop Iran getting the bomb? And the answer to that in an absolutist sense is no. But can you delay and put spanners in the works uh, constantly? Yes, you can. And those spanners in the work allow, works allows the U.S. to step ahead on A1 and the other technologies which needs to be pushed uh, very fast in order to exert in 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 an, in an acid productive way, uh, military supremacy in and around the first and second island chains, uh, in ta around Taiwan. Stuart, how do you think investors are going to react to this? Because this has been one of the issues, hasn't it, that has really spooked global investors and, and caused them to pull back from the Chinese markets, both on the mainland and here in Hong Kong. Do you think they will have seen enough today or yesterday to consider maybe putting a toe back in the water of the Chinese markets? No, no, I think we're still a little way away from that. Um, partly the problem is that... Um, most global investors are very, very underweight. If you take the benchmarks of in, in indices, they're very underweight in China, but they've been underweight for a very long time through good and bad. And so I think that the chances of it changing, you, sort of, you snap your fingers and, and it's all of a sudden everything's good, that's not happening in this instance. I think we need to go quite a lot further along the line. Um, yes, I think what will be important is for um, particularly global investors to see that things are, are, have reached the bottom of the line and may, maybe now we're going to start to see improvements. But they want to see real improvements. They don't want to see talk alone before they'll start committing money. There are plenty of other places well, actually, there aren't so many other places these days. <laughs> but uh, there, are, there, there could be other places. Interest rates have gone up. That's making markets looking quite poor. So, yes, I think that's, um, that's the situation that we're in at the moment. Okay. Well, look, there's another meeting going on as well um, today that is of significance. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has welcomed quite a large Chinese delegation uh, to Beijing, which is headed by the new Chinese Premier Li Chang. Uh, he's going to meet German business leaders and ministers during his trip. He'll also go on to France uh, later this week. It's the first meeting between government officials of the two countries since 2018. David, what, what can we expect from this? Is this a significant meeting as well? Well, it's significant in the sense that it speaks to history, that Germany and uh, particularly Frau Merkel, but people like Schultz, have uh, ensured that Germany is sold out to the Soviet Union or to Russia uh, in terms of becoming totally gas-dependent. And uh, they then followed that up by uh, selling out to China and becoming a latter-day manufacturing economy. After all, Germany makes cars. That's what it does. Uh, and medical equipment and so on. But the same thing is 25 years ago. So Germany, in a sense, due to its dependence on China and its dependence on, on Russia, 
remained a manufacturing economy far more than longer than it should have. Now, what we're seeing at the moment is the great and the good, like Daimler and Siemens saying, oh, well, we have to go on as normal with China, because after all, in the case of Volkswagen, another example, 40% of cars are, show, are, are, are sold in China. And that's mm -hmm. where we resell them if we're, not in, if we're not getting on well with the Chinese. Now, at the other end, Germany is re-evaluating its history and saying, well, maybe all this was not a good idea, and maybe a few other things that went on in the past were not a few, were go, not a good idea. So we need to de-risk, as, as um, uh, the head of the European Commission has said, uh, we need to de-risk our trade and make sure that neither from an export point of view nor from a dependence for raw materials, we are dependent on these people. That is the policy, and it entails a big change with China. But the policy is most doubtful in Germany, which is the manufacturer, which gets the raw materials and sells the goods. So what will come out of this? Well, Li Qiang is really not a, a decision maker. I think you will hear both sides of the story being put, but I think that German trade is now being reevaluated with China and will come out as a much lower uh, priority. But getting there for German companies can be very painful. Stuart and Barry, it seems that German companies are sort of de-risking from the German government, aren't they? They're, they're not on the same page here. Uh, well, we've already heard about Siemens wanting to um, invest more in its plant in, uh, in Chengdu. The car makers are all expanding pro pro production in China as well. Um, there, there's quite a big rift, isn't there, between the German government and, and German businesses? Yes, <laughs> I mean, uh, clearly the German businesses are not so totally enamoured with... Uh, uh, Olaf Scholz's uh, government. Um, he, as Chancellor, was, uh, t has taken over from Angela Merkel and uh, does not seem to have impressed them as much as uh, as perhaps they expected. Uh, but he's still early days in that respect, and he's still got a way to go. I, I think, um, nevertheless, uh, Germany does see a good opportunity for itself having a manufacturing base in China and selling its goods in China and, and, and fam famous for various of its goods, yes, cars and, and other um, steel-related household goods, uh, for example, um, enormously popular in China and, and, and in Asia as well. So manufacturing it in China makes a lot of sense. It doesn't have to then export it from China. Uh, it may be more expensive, but people in China like expensive goods these days, especially yeah, if they I, I think uh, I, I agree with that. But I, David, I think uh, you're suggesting that uh, Germany is behind the curve in terms of moving towards services. I think that's your implication because you know that they're staying with manufacturing, but they're so they're so good at it. I see it differently in the sense that I believe the American business community and the German business community, and elsewhere in Europe, and certainly in Japan, they want into that Chinese market. They are laying low at the moment. We haven't heard from them, particularly since the last, well, six months as tensions have been at a high level. But I, I don't think this is the end of this chapter. I think we're going to see a gradual re-entry of those business communities into China. Well, I'm sure they will try. But I think uh, from a policy point of view, all of this depends on things like trade, finance and government uh, government policy, and I think they're, they're going to have a much more tepid level of support than before. 
There's another thing I would say. Um, yes, I do think that Germany failed to develop, but I think Angela Merkel, with her cheap energy from Russia, was instrumental in that. And I think the development of over-dependence on exports of basically um, cars, but also machine goods and medical goods to China was another one. Now, the, the real problem there arises is that Germany used to export the best cars to China. But, I mean, China is now having a huge export boom in, in its own cars, particularly in the electric vehicle space. And it looks like, in my view, that China's over, Germany's over-dependence on China is about to result in a massive market loss, massive share loss of market share. So I think the over-dependence on China which Germany has in terms of its manufactured product is now likely to become a liability, despite the you know the kind of statements which you would expect from people like Siemens and uh, and energy producers, which is let's go on as we were, like, you know let's be the best friends with Russia and let's be the best friends with China. I suspect that market events are going to make that a lot less attractive than before. Just wait a year. Well, wait a year. I'll make one prediction. I think there will be restraints on access to markets in both Europe and in the United States yes. of Chinese electric vehicles. Yes. Because there's no way, as I think Bill Ford and the Mr. Farley at uh, Ford Motor Company said just recently, that uh, we can compete. We cannot. And yes. BYD has got such a big lead on this. And the Americans have a long history of this. We, we restrain the export of Japanese vehicles into the U.S. market uh, 30, 40 years ago. So this will happen again. I think so. Well, that's very important. If you're going to have free trade and you're going to have uh, Mr. Siemens, uh, you know, dancing a Kaylee of celebration of his re-entry into China, uh, and German cars, you know, are under restraint in China, and above all, Chinese cars, electric vehicles, which are superior vehicles to anything we produce, I'm sorry to say, to inform everybody, and they don't have free access to market, then you've got a problem, for start. Yes, yes, and we, and we do. We will have this problem. It will not be resolved despite all the nice words or at least no. the meeting that we've just been talking about in Beijing. Now, Barry, there's a, a third meeting going on as well this week on the geopolitical front. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi is going to have a state visit uh, to Washington. Uh, I think he arrives on Thursday. Now, this is another important ally, isn't it, Barry, for, for the US? A little bit like Germany. They're, they're, they're allies, but not entirely on the same page. I suppose the same could be said of the US and India as well, although they do share this suspicion of China. So what can we expect from this meeting? Well, it's a love affair, isn't it? And, and you know, I think the Americans have worked very hard uh, as the Indians disengaged economically and particularly military equipment-wise from Russia. Russia was always the biggest supplier into the Indian military, and I think the Americans want to a uh, slice of that cake. Uh, this is an important relationship. I mean, this whole, you know, Indo-Pacific, as the Americans like to call it, but India has a real problem in terms of trade policy. They're very bureaucratic. They don't uh, really play by the same rules as, you know, the Europeans, Americans, and even the Japanese. So, yeah, it's important, but I don't think uh, I should back away. There probably will be announcements of some American tech firms going into India while the prime minister is here in the States. And I think that both sides will want to build up this relationship. But I'm not sure it's on a very firm foundation. 
Well, we're expecting well, general, it, we're expecting General Electric to maybe announce that it's going to produce military jet engines in India, and there's also talk about Micron Technology uh, setting up a semiconductor packaging factory in India. So presumably, we are going to see some high-profile deals. Well, there'll be two-way two-way announcements, won't there? But I think from the U.S. point of view, one of the biggest key the key issue for them is to try to stop India importing Russian oil. I mean, like that would be right. That's absolutely bang on. I mean, uh, uh, what America is trying to do is to get a periwinkle out of a shell, and that periwinkle happens to be India's love-in with, with Russia and cheap oil. And what America wants is to get uh, uh, India as the biggest house hole in China's concept of the global south, almost at any cost. Uh, that's what it's all about. And is yeah. it going to succeed? No, it's not, because Modi, as Modi does, is going to continue to dance on a straw. Yep, I think you're right on that, David. And this is a very important thing. But if, if you can get Russian oil at a below market price from Russia, uh, I think the Indians are going to do it. And they've been yeah. doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. No, there's nothing wrong with what they're doing either, is there? Because, you know, what the US and Europeans have said is we set a price cap. Um, you can't buy oil above that. Well, India isn't. It's buying oil, you know, way below it. But it, it, in many ways, it, it's fitting in with, with the price cap that uh, the US and the Europeans have set, isn't it? Yes, no, that's perfectly correct. But the problem about it is that money is money is money. And they're buying so much of this damn stuff that they're financing the war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Now, a price cap or no price cap, and out here we can have a long and theoretical argument, but you'd have to buy us all breakfast about whether the price cap is set low enough to actually make Russia get less money, but to, to allow oil markets globally to function freely, and it has achieved that. But the negative effect is with the using dark tankers and all sorts of, all sorts of shenanigans, uh, India is financing a lot of the war in Ukraine and making kind of, you know, these global south noises. Oh, well, you're both guilty. You both have to stop, blah, 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 which to say, uh, to put it mildly, is irritating. But what America wants is to get India at least verbally, maybe not in terms of not buying the oil anymore, but at least putting some sort of a limit and getting it, getting the semantics right that it is not seen as a part of a global South supporting China's position. It is, it, is, it, it is on America's side. And if it wants American money, that's where it's got to be. Yeah, I, and I think that if they can't stop the, the Russian oil going to India, what they will also want is for Modi to start making some much stronger noises towards Russia to stop the war. Um, it, you know, Financing the war is one thing, but but making political noises and statements because Modi has a free hand to go to Russia in a way that most other global leaders don't have. And I think if he can go into Russia and, and again persuade Putin to stop the war, that will enhance his global status um, massively. And that, I think that would be helpful as far as the U.S. is concerned. Yeah, and I would just add to that, Stuart, that uh, Modi's got a delicate task because he's going to host the G20 meeting and uh, will Putin come if he comes uh, that means that he would have told the international court I won't be arresting uh, Mr. Putin 
And then what do the Americans do? I think the Americans want to participate in the G20. They didn't really... Yes, Mr. Biden went to Bali, but uh, the Russians really weren't there at any level. So I think uh, that's what Mr. Modi wants from Washington, some kind of assurance, don't wreck our party, which is coming up in the, Good in the point. months ahead. Good point. Now, in, in the four minutes that we have left, um, Stuart, I wanted to ask you about the yuan stock trading, which started yesterday on the, uh, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. 24 companies with a combined market value of 1.9 trillion US dollars. You can now buy in Chinese yuan if you wish. There was about $23 million worth of shares changed hands in, in yuan. What's your thoughts about this scheme and has it uh, met expectations on the first day? Well, it's a very slow start. That's um, that's inevitable. But it, um, the, the objective of it really is so that uh, more Chinese money can come into Hong Kong. Now, interestingly, most of the companies that, um, that are being included in this dual pricing are mainland companies that are listed in Hong Kong. And I think it's very likely that we will see um, a lot of money coming in through Stock Connect scheme. Uh, and, and so for global investors, the, the fact that uh, you can buy in, in renminbi as well as Hong Kong dollars is an irrelevance. It is for Hong Kong, uh, uh, sorry, it is for mainland Chinese uh, institutional investors primarily who can now buy in Hong Kong in the same currency that they think in. And there are no exchange uh, control, exchange rate issues that they need to be bothered by. Will it be successful? Um, probably will be. It'll take a while to get going, I think. It's like a lot of these um, schemes that has, uh, have been developed in Hong Kong to access China money. Uh, they, it takes a little while, a little bit of practice, a little bit of courage in some instances on the part of the mainland institutions. But I think that once that starts, then it will start to, to go very well. David, we have about two minutes. Any thoughts? Is this going to help with the internationalization of the renminbi? Well, my own view is that, and it's a long story, like most of my stories, is that the threat to the dollar's supremacy is much larger than the complacency of uh, people like us would make you think. I, I know, for instance, 70% of dollar holdings in international reserves are held by nations which have a military alliance with the United States. It is not true that you have to be a civilized country, you have to have absolutely perfect laws and all the rest to become an international currency. What can happen is that China can actually develop the renminbi as the only feasible alternative by setting up means of training, of trading, which are the equivalent of having open current accounts, rule of law, uh, rule of tort, and so on. There are many ways of setting up alternatives. And secondly, I would say if we've learned one thing from Russia, it is that having a war, which the U.S. disapproves of, is very bad for the health of your reserves. They tend to be taken away. Now, China sitting on three million, maybe two-thirds of it is in U.S. dollars. And if we are moving towards some form of uh, conflict with with uh, Taiwan, then for how long would China allow that? And if it did move those reserves, which takes time, but if it did move those reserves, then automatically the US dollar falls below 50% of global reserves. 
Mm-hmm. And that might not be the end of the world, but it's a big psychological point. And I would say it's almost inevitable, not within the next 10 years, but within the next five. Okay, wow. well, thank you. For I think that's tantalizing. Yeah. Absolutely tantalizing. It just seems to me, in conclusion, Peter, that this is going to enhance Hong Kong's role as a financial center, but a Chinese financial center. But maybe I'm wrong. No, I think you're right. You're right. Thank you very much for very interesting thoughts there on some quite weighty matters. You heard there our U.S. economics correspondent in Washington, D.C., Barry Wood. Also, David Roche as president and global strategist at Independent Strategy. And our regular Tuesday morning commentator, Asian fund management industry consultant, Stuart Aldcroft. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back tomorrow when I'll be joined on the show by Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and William Ma, Chief Investment Officer at Grow Investment Group. And with a view from Japan, it's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Have a great day. Money Talk.